Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for August 2013. This month we talk about blogging, mentoring and getting other people to do your work. So first segment this month is courtesy of marketing guru Winston Marsh. Winston's interviewing me about blogging for service professionals as part of his monthly business marketing audio series. So let's join that now. Okay, buckle your seatbelt and get ready to get up to cyberspace speed. It's time for Gihan Pereira to take us into the fast, flat and free world. Gihan Pereira, welcome to Business Marketing. Thanks, Mino. Great to be here as usual. Now, as you know, our friend Paul has been talking about blogging. He makes it sound sensationally simple about how you can write blogs. But look, lots of our listeners, Gihan, are in all sorts of businesses. And I wonder whether you can come at it from the angle of what I do if I'm a plumber or an accountant or a cabinet maker or a chemist. How do I tackle this great thing I've got to do of blogging? Yeah, exactly we know. And I've been listening to Paul's episodes over the last few months, and it's fantastic. And I think one of the things that people think is blogging is too hard because I'm not a writer. I don't know how to write. So I think we should look at things that you can do with your blog, which are more than just writing or different from writing. You should certainly write stuff for your blog, but there's so much other stuff you can do as well. And, it, and I, I think it's a great idea. Let's talk about different, different types of businesses. Let's talk about professionals like accountants and lawyers. What should they be doing? Okay, this is actually one of the easiest ones to start with, and I'm glad, I'm glad you started with that one, we know, because accountants and lawyers are giving advice. That's what they do. Their business is all about giving advice, and that's what they should do in their blog as well. They've got to be careful, of course, with the word advice, but you're talking about things like how-to stuff. So one thing they can do, of course, is write really good articles, but let's look at a couple of other things that they can do. Accountants and lawyers and professional service advisors should be keeping an eye on what's happening in the news. So one of the simplest things you can do is look at something that's coming up in the news, like some changes to superannuation legislation, changes to the property market, changes to some industrial relations laws, and there'll be an article in some newspaper, The Age or the Sydney Morning Herald or some newspaper, there'll be an online article, so just link to that and add your little comment to it. And all you have to do is say, this is what The Age says about this, or this is what the Prime Minister says, link to the article and add a little paragraph that just says, this is what this means for you. So you become a bit of a translator from the news that's been reported to how this is relevant for your market. So that's one really simple thing that they can do. And I'm surprised if more people don't do that. Golly, Gihan, I'm kicking a goal. Just uh, over the weekend, I saw uh, a research report from Roy Morgan, the research people, about uh, how mobile devices are impacting on the way people do business. And I thought that was very interesting, so I just did a little blog article and attached a link to Roy Morgan's research and sent it out. So give me 10 points for that. Yeah, absolutely, we know. Gold star for you there. <laughs> and it, and the, the value of that is that what you're doing is looking to stuff that's already been published, but you're not just linking to everything. You're linking to the things that are most relevant for your customers and clients, and that's valuable. See, another, another thing you can uh, link to, if you're an accountant, is the ATO website. And the ATO website is big, it's complex, and it's sometimes hard to navigate, but it's got some great information on there if you know what to look for and where to look. So if you're an accountant, I think you should be linking to really relevant stuff on the ATO website. So, you know, that you and I, we know we travel quite a bit, and so we've got to know what expenses we can claim and what we're allowed to claim and what we're not allowed to claim. That's something that if an accountant has a lot of clients who travel, they should be linking to 
the, the latest travel ruling from the ATO, because, of course, that changes every year. Uh, they should be providing a link to that whenever the, new, the newest information becomes available. It's such an easy thing to do, to link to other useful resources. Well, one of the things that gets in the way of an accountant or a lawyer or anybody doing this is that dreaded disease, the curse of assumption. Exactly. We assume that people know what we know, and they don't. Actually, another thing you can do, uh, and coming, coming back to making things easy for people we know, is particularly accountants and lawyers and people who can demonstrate stuff on the screen, you can create a screen capture video. So what this is, is it's not a video of you, so they don't see your face. What they see is you do something on the screen. And if you're an accountant, this is really easy because you might be working with an Excel spreadsheet, and it doesn't have to be a complex spreadsheet. It can be something as simple as, here's how, keep, how you calculate the GST on something or here's how you balance a budget. And you open up a spreadsheet on your screen and you work through it. So you do you type in numbers, you work with your mouth, and what people see is a recording of that and they can hear your voice as you're talking. And the really great thing is, this used to be difficult, but the great thing is that that's no longer difficult. There are websites like, uh, this one that I use is called Screen R. So it's short for screen recording, so screenhour.com. You just go there, there's no software to download, you sign up for an account, it's free, and you can create up to five minutes of screen capture videos, and you can create as many as you like, and then you just post them to your blog. It's a very, very simple thing to do, and if you think about, if you switch your brain onto, what do I know that my clients and customers would like to know, and then how can I demonstrate it on the screen, it's a really easy thing to do with screen hour. Fantastic. I could take people through how to write an advertisement or how to make the advertisement look good and all that sort of stuff, couldn't I? Absolutely, you could. Now, there's one big question here that I often ask clients who come and see me, and let me ask you. Look, I'm doing my blog, but uh, how do I get people to start to look at my blog and, and want to read it? I think that the biggest thing you can do, you know, is just tell people about it. I mean, there's certainly things you can do with search engine optimization, like make sure you've got really good blog post titles. The, the best people who are going to come to visit your blog are the people who hear about it through you. So you should be telling your clients, if you're an accountant, you should be telling your clients, look, I, I posted this on my blog three weeks ago or three months ago, and then you provide them a link to that blog post. And this is one of the biggest advantages of blogs over a number of other things. So, for example, I reckon you should do a blog and an email newsletter, and they both have value. But the real value in a blog is that it's permanent. It's on the Internet. Every blog post becomes a separate web page. So Google will find it. Other websites can link to you, and you can tell people about it. And the best way to get people to your blog is to start telling people about it. And the other thing you should do, Gihan, surely, is... As an account, everybody you meet, you should get their name and contact details and say, listen, I've got something I think might be interesting to you. I'll send you a link to it. Exactly right. Exactly. And that's what you should do if you go to a networking function, if you get referred to somebody else. Any, as you say, anyone that you meet, find something useful that you can send to them and send them that. And this is one of the things that a blog, again, gives you the ability to do. Because once you start publishing to your blog, you'll find that everybody that you meet, there'll be something useful you can send them from your blog. And, and so you do that because people worry about, how can I send them something free? I haven't got anything. Well, you have. You've written a blog post six months ago. That, that's exactly what they need to know. And you mentioned that, going to networking nights. Now, that's fantastic because so many people go to a networking night looking for somebody to sell, when in fact what they should do is go to a networking night looking for people with whom to build a relationship so that at some stage in the future they may sell them. And that's what your blog does, helps build the relationship. Exactly right. 
Wonderful wise words from the man who can put you on the cyberspace map, Gihan Pereira. You can email him, Gihan, at GihanPereira.com or visit his website, GihanPereira.com or you can phone him on 02 5746. Hope you enjoyed that. I've been a big fan of Winston's for 15 years now. This year, I have a regular place in his business marketing program. So if you'd like to know more about it, check out his website at www.winstonmarsh.com.au. You'll love it. So now my expert interview this month is with mentoring guru Anne Rolf. She's Australia's leading expert on mentoring in the workplace. In this interview, she shares some really valuable insights into the role of mentoring in modern organisations. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira. I'm speaking today with Anne Rolf, who's an expert in mentoring. I'm really excited about this because when I say expert, I'm not using the term lightly. Uh, she's clearly Australia's leading specialist on mentoring. She's written the leading books on mentoring. She consults to organizations of all sizes and, and at all different levels. She speaks at conferences worldwide. And she's the founder of the leading online network for mentoring in Australia. She's been educating for a generation and uh, she's been consulting in this area well, since the 20th century. I know and that might make you feel old, but I've known you for a long time, so that makes me feel old as well. <laughs> uh, so welcome, Anne. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And I want to talk to you about the critical change that's happening in organizations today. And I know you've got some really insights in this, but what I see is happening is that people are demanding more one-on-one learning and uh, and over training over mass training and i think it's proving to be more effective than mass training as well so i've got no hesitation in talking to you for that and so i'm really looking forward to this interview so let's start with a little bit of background so tell me how you got started in this whole area of mentoring and uh, whatever you, what your qualifications are and your experience and your expertise well, it's a very practical expertise that I have, Gihan. Um, I've been involved in adult learning for over 30 years and um, I, I have a background in career counselling and career development. So I started in uh, uh, financial institutions. I did a lot of work with helping uh, bank managers in transition during the 80s, uh, uh, during the, the earlier financial crisis, I suppose, in or recession in this country, making a transition from their lifelong careers in a bank into uh, all sorts of other possibilities. I set up my own consultancy about 27 years ago and, um, again, doing a lot of career development work and some general training. And um, in the area of career development, I was always talking about mentoring as a strategy, whether it was for career development or career transition. And then some of my clients started saying, well, come in and talk to us about specifically mentoring, so I did, and there was just not a lot of uh, information out there, certainly not in this country, and um, and so I started developing and uh, researching and uh, drawing on the information that was available, and uh, it, it ended up becoming my entire area of practice, uh, so it's pretty much all I do now, help organisations set up mentoring programs, train mentors and people who want to be uh, mentored, and provide the resources that support that. Yeah, great, great. And yeah, 27 years, so you've certainly got a depth of experience there. <laughs> so let's just get some of the terminology right to start with, Anne. And I shouldn't say right, let's just be clear about the terminology that we're using. Because I've heard people talk about mentoring, coaching, sponsoring somebody in an organization, even counseling. And I know that they mean different things when they use those terms. And 
I'm not saying there's any right or wrong, but and what do you mean when you say mentoring? And also the, the other side of it is you talk, uh, you use the phrase people being mentored. What do you call them? I guess the, the correct term would be protege, but that just sounds a bit, I don't know, pretentious. And uh, I've heard other people say mentee. So let's just start off by clearing up some of the terminology. Oh, I wish we could. Um, (laughs) It's uh, probably this is the most difficult question you could ask me, Gihan, because um, people mean different things when they use those words, and uh, and it can become quite controversial, or it can instigate a lot of disagreement. Um, Like you, I'm not fond of the word protege for the person who's being mentored, although that term is quite common, um, particularly in the United States. But I, I. tend not to use that. In my own writing, I use the word mentoree to signify the person who's mm-hmm. being mentored. Um, the first book I ever wrote um, back in, what was it, 94 or something, um, someone slapped me over the wrist and said, that's not even a word. He made that up. And uh, I had to agree that I did. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I sort of reverted back to mentee, but I wasn't all that comfortable with it. You know what? It is personal preference. And uh, I think Hugh Mackay once said, the dictionary is a history book, not a definition. You know, we, we, we use words differently and, and they mean different things to different people. So in my writing, I stick with mentoree because that's my personal preference. In my consulting, when I'm working with an organisation or a group of people, I will use the terminology that they prefer. It doesn't really matter to me. And indeed, uh, this idea of coaching versus mentoring I think the most significant thought leaders in this area are actually recognising there are so many similarities and, yes, there are some differences, but there seem to be more similarities these days than differences. And because it is such an individual preference thing, personally, I don't mind what label you put on it. I think it's much more important to be clear about what is the purpose of this conversation or this relationship how are we going to have that relationship? What are we going to talk about? How are we going to do this? And then put on the label that people are more comfortable with using it, whether that's coaching or whether it's mentoring. Now, if you go to different sources, uh, people who are coach trainers, for example, and there's a big industry in coach training um, out there, uh, people will get quite, um, some people will get quite irate about that. But I'm sorry, I think that's a waste of energy. Um, I think counselling is quite different and we can make some distinctions. Counselling is far more personal and usually far more specialised. So, um, and usually a counsellor will be someone who's perhaps a trained psychologist who has those qualifications. So, and, um, and I guess with coaching too, there's, there's, um, coaching accreditation that people have done. And certainly if you were looking for a professional coach, I'd be looking at their accreditation, um, uh, before I shelled out money on that. Mentoring at this stage, there is no, for individuals, anyone can sort of hang up their shingle and say they're a mentor. So, um, but I'm sorry I haven't clarified that at all, but that's state of the nation. I think you have made some really important distinctions there, and just a couple of things that I picked up on is it doesn't really matter what you call it when it gets down to the practical nuts and bolts of it. When two people are working together in a relationship, it doesn't matter whether you whether you call them a mentor or a coach, uh, but that distinction might be important to the 
if you're if you're an external coach or an external mentor, and I can see there are some things there where if I say I'm a mentor and I'm sharing my experience as opposed to a coach where I'm mostly asking questions, I can see for me that might be a useful distinction, but when it gets down to the practical nuts and bolts, it doesn't really matter. Yes, I agree. And, and there are some models out there that, that do make these um, fairly clear distinctions between mentor and coach. Um, but uh, in, in most of my work, you could put either label on, on what we're doing. And I think the other distinction that I really got from what you just said there, Anne, is that this is all about conversations. And you use that word to talk about that mentoring relationship. And I think that is the most significant difference, isn't it? That it's we've gone from the age of doing mass training to one-on-one learning, and uh, I follow your blogs and newsletters regularly, and I and I love this research, this research that you quoted, and I can read it out because I wrote it down. It says, of the learning and development that people use on the job, only 10% comes from formal education and training courses, 20% comes from exposure, which is observing people, and 70% comes from experience, so managers need to lead the learning experience of their people. Um, and I love that because I think at some level we all intuitively know that there's nothing like experience for learning, but some of those those extreme numbers will surprise many people. So let's look at the training side of it first. So to, to quote again, so 10% of your learning and development comes from formal education and training courses, and yet training has been the default learning tool for so long. So why doesn't it work? Okay, well, I probably should clarify um, on uh, from the outset. Um, you know, I have been a trainer for around 30 years and there is some really good training out there and we've learned a lot about how people learn and that's often incorporated into training courses. So I don't want to give them a bad, uh, a bad rap here. Mm. It's probably true to say that training on its own doesn't work. And uh, another statistic there that's pretty shocking is that uh, only about 16% of people transfer learning from a training course onto the job in ways that actually improve performance. Now, that's not necessarily the fault of the training. I think at what what goes with the training that is uh, leading to that downfall. Um, And what we've known for decades is that adults learn when they have a need or a problem to solve or a strong desire or an inspired interest. So that kind of primes us for learning. And the reason that training often doesn't work in those situations is um, people, and you may have found this maybe yourself Maybe not, but I've certainly found in some of the earlier training that I did, people have been sent to a training course. Um, they're not there because they've chosen to go. So, um, And even if they've chosen to go to training, they don't necessarily have specific intentions or a clear purpose in being there. So they don't have that kind of desire and motivation. So they're not primed for the learning experience. I also find that uh, often what's lacking is the focus and the interest from their managers. And my recommendation is if a manager um, has, a, has a person going to a training course, um, the manager should sit down with that person and have a conversation before they ever go away to a training course or undertake that learning activity so that those um, specific intentions and that purpose can be really highlighted and that sense of interest and involvement from the manager and expectation from the manager that they're going to learn something is really cultivated. And then the final thing, and perhaps the most important, 
important thing is, okay, a person might go to training. They might even learn something and retain it. But do they have any support? Is there, are there any strategies? Um, is there accountability for transferring that learning in a meaningful way that affects their performance? And I think that those are the reasons that uh, training doesn't work. It's not that there's a problem necessarily with the training or the learning experience itself. It's more what happens before and after that has that detrimental effect on the really return on investment on training. Yeah, okay, and I understand what you're saying there because what you're saying is it's got to be an integrated approach and maybe if you do it properly, then the training will account for 10% of it, but the 70% of it that you that you need to do and most organisations aren't doing uh, is the thing that's going to really make the difference and that's what happens before and after. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I know you've been talking about this for a long time, Anne. And uh, like I said, we've been we've known each other for a while, and uh, I know that you you've been ahead of the curve, and the the rest of the corporate world is just now catching up with the clients that you've been working with over the last you know many years, and and there really does seem to be a wave of support for this sort of integrated approach that you're talking about, this one-on-one support that you can get from mentoring, um, and there just seem to be a lot of trends that support that. Gen Ys want mentoring rather than just training. Uh, there are teams that are distributed around the world, so they can't get together now for just uh, doing a training course en masse. And I guess things change so fast that formal training courses, uh, they're, they're good, but sometimes they can be a bit slow and sometimes they quickly, that learning falls out of date. So there's clearly a greater need for mentoring. Um, but what about its benefits? What do you think are the biggest benefits that mentoring gives, not just for the two people involved in that relationship, but for the organisation as a whole? Okay. Well, I think there is a growing recognition that uh, that a major benefit is the development of the two people, as you just mentioned. People tend to intuitively think it's the person who's being mentored who gets mm-hmm. all the benefit. Mm-hmm. But in fact, my experiences and what mentors tell me often is that they develop, they learn and, and they grow as a result of having these conversations and relationships. And in fact, there are some management programs where participants are required to go and mentor other people because of the development they themselves gain from it. But I guess the thing from an organisational perspective is that whenever you develop the capability of individuals, you actually uh, are developing the capacity of the organisation as well. I think um, there's a great benefit in um, uh, seriously offering mentoring as the development tool because, as you said, Gen Y are looking for it, so it's very attractive. Um, when you're recruiting people. It's also important to um, uh, retention. So people invest, organisations invest a lot of money in uh, attracting and recruiting their talent, but uh, do they put the similar uh, investment in retention when they know that people are looking for that uh, one-on-one development? I think uh, another major benefit for organisations is this whole area of knowledge uh, management, and um, uh, young people like, Gen Y really like uh, this form of um, uh, gaining knowledge because it's real and they respect people who are sharing real experience-based learning with them. Um, the other aspect of it from a knowledge management point of view, you know, we live in a really rich environment where information is literally at our fingertips. You can Google anything. You can find out pretty much anything you want to know. But there's a gap between... Um, gaining information and turning that into 
uh, knowledge, wisdom or practical applications. So mentoring helps bridge that uh, gap. There's also um, a whole range of areas, and I guess this is the key to uh, knowledge management. You know, there's that tacit knowledge, that, that knowledge that's not that easy to teach. It can be learned, but it's certainly not taught in a training course. It's kind of picked up. The knowledge that comes from experience that people have within them and perhaps even don't even know that they know. I think also there's a, a um, an area, another area that's really coming into uh, into attention these days, and that's um, people's well-being at work. And we know that by having connections in the workplace, by having relationships in the workplace, um, it actually increases people's uh, well-being, um, and that also feeds into uh, employee engagement and again the retention aspects. Uh, benefits that are gained through mentoring. Um, the the last one that I think uh, needs to be thought about in terms of a, a real benefit for organisations in um, in mentoring is is that of people gaining a whole new perspective when they have these kinds of relationships with people who are quite different from them. So we've mentioned Gen Y a few times. So often Gen Y might be mentored by someone who's considerably older. Or when we have mentoring from people by with people of different cultures and different backgrounds and different experiences. So people can get a real different take on the world around them, on the organisation they're in, on the subject matter that might be of interest uh, to them. Because I think that often, um, you know, people can be, we can be walking around in our own little bubble. You know, we see people who are like us, we talk to people who are like us, we read the same things, um, and, and we think everyone is the same. But mentoring is an opportunity to kind of burst that bubble by interacting with people who are really different from us. And we know these days in organisations that diversity and difference um, really add value. Uh, to our, our productivity and our organisational performance. That's really interesting, Anne, some of the things that you say there, because as you, were, as you were talking, I was just thinking, wow, this is such a different perspective to the value that's that's within your organisation, because I think it's always been traditionally seen that the knowledge in the organisation is measured by how well your induction programs laid out, how what good training programs you offer internally or externally, uh, what sort of systems and processes you have documented in place. And yet what you're saying is actually really embracing the idea that many organizations pay lip service to, which is that our people are our greatest assets. And there may be knowledge in, in people within people that isn't, well, there definitely is knowledge that isn't documented anywhere and can't be trained, but there may also be knowledge that just and shouldn't be documented and uh, and trained because it's something about the individual. And it's, it's what you're doing with mentoring is really leveraging the the individual's experiences and wisdom. Uh, yes, that's true. And I think um, because mentoring is a one-on-one -on -one relationship too, it can sometimes overcome some of the difficulties of um, uh, difference in personal styles and personality. Mm -hmm. um, for example, you've got some people who might be introverted, so very quiet people, quite talented and very knowledgeable, but you have to work much harder to extract that knowledge and um, and so mentoring, because it's one-on-one -on -one and a person with a preference for introversion 
uh, communicates more effectively one-on-one than in a group. So um, mentoring can can draw them out, it can build their confidence and allow them to contribute more when they are in a team situation. Yeah, great, great. And so there's, there's this other idea about mentoring that I've always had, which you have educated me slightly differently about, Anne, and again, this is from reading your newsletter and blog posts. I've always thought of mentoring as something that, that doesn't happen within the standard hierarchy. So you've got managers and leaders and direct reports and matrix reports and dotted lines and so on, but that's all part of the standard hierarchy. But with mentoring, it seems like or what I've always thought is that your manager shouldn't be your mentor. And I was, so I was really intrigued by something that, that you wrote saying that shouldn't be the case. And in fact, managers not only can be your mentor, but sometimes they should be mentors for their own people. So tell me more about that, because I thought that was really interesting and a different perspective from what I'm used to. Yeah, well, I mean, most of the mentoring programs that I'm involved with within an organisation do uh, match people with a mentor who is outside of that uh, normal chain of um, authority. You know, So we talk about the person being offline, not in a direct line of authority. Um, and there are advantages to this, of course. The person, because they're not the manager, they can be more objective. Um, it's, it can sometimes be easier to build that role as the confidant um, and have those conversations that some people don't necessarily want to have with a manager. Um, and, and yet... Um, we also, and I, I guess it's true to say that, uh, and people often ask me, you know, um, but shouldn't a good manager be mentoring their staff anyway? And I guess in an ideal world, yeah, they should. And in fact, the research says that uh, managers who are focused and effective at developing their people actually have teams that outperform those that are not by around 25%. So there's a real uh, benefit to be had there. And um, and three main things come to mind when, when we talk about the reasons why managers should be mentoring their own staff. Um, firstly, that managers are obviously responsible for productivity in their team, and that's where the uh, the performance, uh, that statistic of 25%, uh, is linked to that. So we know that when a manager is takes an interest and develops their people, they're going to lift the performance of their team. The other area is one I touched on earlier of that uh, of retention. And again, drawing on the research, um, uh, the Gallup organisation have been researching for decades into what makes a great leader. And, uh, and they've actually isolated some, some critical questions that uh, make a difference to uh, productivity and performance and, uh, and so on uh, with individuals. And one of those questions is actually, um, does my supervisor or someone at work seem to care about me as a person? This impacts on retention. Um, and we know uh, that uh, people who do not get development, do not get mentoring, are going to be looking for other jobs. Um, and then there's this whole area of learning and development. And I think that uh, whilst I wouldn't want uh, individuals to see their manager as the only mentor they have, and I think people do need these offline mentors when it comes to kind of longer-term career, more holistic um, conversations uh, the, the whole person and what's going on for them in their life, um, the manager has a role to play when it comes to on-the-job performance um, so that uh, uh, they're really looking at 
how to bring along those people, how to help them perform as part of the team, how to facilitate the, the learning development that's going to make a difference to the immediate workplace as well as the, the longer-term career. So, so, so can you give me some practical examples of this? So if I'm, a, if I'm looking at a mentoring relationship, let's say I'm being mentored by my manager, what do you think that I would see differently? What, what would be different there than me simply being managed by my manager? Okay, well, I think that uh, that the very best employees are actually building their own learning networks. So they're tapping in. They're already tapping in. If they're interested in their future and their career, if they're switched on, they are looking for learning opportunities. So I think the manager has um, an opportunity there to focus some of that uh, self-initiated development uh, to the here and now, the day-to-day. I think that the manager can actually um, help their employee to set some short-term goals that stretch them um, and and really be giving some feedback and indeed feed forward uh, to the that individual about what they can do tomorrow uh, next week, next month, that will actually increase their um, uh, uh, ability and their performance right here and now. Yeah, right. Okay, I get that. So what you're saying is that in a pure manager role, what they're doing is managing to get the tasks done, to get their projects achieved, to get their products out on time and on budget. But in a mentor role, they can actually be helping the person develop in whatever ways they want to develop and in whatever ways the manager can help them develop. That that accrue a benefit to the immediate workplace right here and now. Right, right. Okay. So there's another idea I've come across at hand, which is this idea of reverse mentoring. So we've talked so so far uh, about the idea that you're going to be mentored by somebody more senior than you in the organisation. But what about the opposite idea? I think of my uh, whenever I want to learn something about how to use my iPad, I go to my eight year old niece Abby because she's an absolute master of it and she learns about it at school, she plays around with it at home and I genuinely learn from her. And it, it just seems to me that this whole idea of reverse mentoring can be useful in organisations as well. What are your thoughts around that? Oh, I agree and I wish I had Abby close to me too. <laughs> um, because, uh, and, and the example you've given is a really good one because um, with technology like uh, like an iPad or, or something similar, um, for, for me, and I'm sure many people um, like me, it's pretty much uh, trial and error. And, um, and so having, and that's time consuming and you're missing out on a lot of the potential that this fabulous tool you have in your hands can, can offer you. Whereas, uh, you know, a short time with someone who, who is so, who's grown up with it, you know, I call them digital natives. Uh, kids that have actually grown up with this technology who have no fear, who play with it and experiment with it. So there is a fantastic opportunity. And I've heard of this actually happening in a, um, in a uh, reasonably structured way in some organisations where senior executives might team up with, uh, say, a young graduate for a reverse mentoring role on that sort of technology um, and, and those kind of areas that the younger people are so very familiar with. But I think this is an example of, um, of many contemporary approaches to mentoring that kind of expand that traditional idea we have of someone more senior mentoring someone more junior. And, um, and I, I particularly enjoy um, reciprocal mentoring. So 
reciprocal mentoring where you might meet with a, uh, a peer or a colleague um, where no one's more senior than the other. And, uh, and I have several of these relationships and have had them over the years where I might meet with a, a professional colleague and I might mentor them for a period of time at our meeting and then we reverse roles and they might mentor me. Um, so it's a reciprocal arrangement with both of us mentoring the other um and i have another colleague we just meet uh about once a month and we have conversations about whatever's on our mind and sometimes we'll talk about an interesting uh, uh concept or something she's perhaps teaching or learning and other times in that same conversation i'm sharing with her something that i've just grabbed hold of or have been doing for a long time and we it's an exchange so it's kind of mutual it's reciprocal and then um, another way, and I, I sort of said contemporary, but it's actually quite, um, it's been around for a long, long, long time, and that's the idea of mastermind groups. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is where a group of people get together and no one person is the mentor. It's, uh, it's an exchange. You might have a structure. Um, and then this is the sort of thing that you and I do on the Google Hangout uh, about once a month with a group of people. And uh, whilst you might facilitate the actual technology of that and kind of set it up for us and, and um, perhaps chair the meeting in a sense, um, everyone is contributing to the learning of everyone else. So, again, it's kind of this mutual exchange. So I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for us to develop a, develop these ideas. Mentoring isn't anymore um, one senior person with one junior person. There's lots of uh, configurations and lots of opportunities for us to do this in different ways. Yeah, and actually you've just kind of broadened my perspective around that end because I, I hadn't thought about those sort of scenarios as mentoring but of course they're there and uh, I agree with you now that I look at it that way that's exactly what I'm getting when I get involved in those mastermind groups so a few years ago I remember starting up a group of about we had about eight or nine people uh, that I invited to join this group and uh, we called ourselves the board because at our first uh, meeting I said look I'd like you guys to be my board of directors and we thought that was that was a really good name so we became each other's board of directors and we were generally people who were running our own businesses but some people who were employed as well and so we were looking for that that sort of mentoring input from the others in the group. Mm. Yes that's right and that's actually something that uh uh, small business people can and uh, often do do to have a small group that they call the board of directors. Um, and those people aren't a board of directors in the sense that they have those fiduciary responsibilities or those duties and tasks, but they certainly have the same sort of strategic input, um, that sharing of their their knowledge and experience, their their perspective, their different point of view, and, and that's incredibly valuable to a small business person. So, and we've talked about a lot of things, and I know that everything we've talked about, you've got layers and layers of depth to that, which we just didn't have the time to cover. Um, I'd love to know, and I'd love to give you the chance to talk about what sort of clients you like to work with, because I'm sure people would like to get in touch with you, and uh, please also tell them how they can get in touch with you. Okay, thank you. Well, um, the the people that I most enjoy working with are, are those that are 
really serious about looking for the strategic value of mentoring, not just a quick fix or doing something because it's the latest buzzword. Um, I also love it when people really recognise the untapped capacity in both perhaps younger people or the people that they might be looking to um, to mentor, but also those more mature and experienced people really um, capitalising on um, on the knowledge and the wisdom and the experience and the ideas that, that can be released through a mentoring conversation. And, uh, yeah, I'd love people to contact me. Um, my business is called Mentoring Works. Um, people can email me. It's Anne, A-N-N, at mentoring-works.com. I uh, also have a website, which is mentoring works works.com and of course if you google Anne Rolf and mentoring you'll find me yeah great and this Rolf R-O-L-F-E hope you enjoyed the conversation with Anne in fact that was only half of the interview if you're interested in getting the full one hour version please email me gihan at gihanperera.com we be happy to send it to you so our next segment this month is an extract from a recent webinar that I did about how to use the internet to collaborate with others to do work for you. The full version of the webinar, including the slides, is available to eGurus members, but I've extracted a segment of it here for you. Hope you enjoy it. Let me start off by saying this is the most important thing for you to do as a thought leader, uh, as an infopreneur. Your idea is to do the thinking in your business, to do the selling, and to do the delivery. And this is spe- specifically for infopreneurs, eGurus, and thought leaders. You create the material, which is a thinking. You are the person generally who goes out and sells it because people want to buy from you, not from a sales team. And you're the person who delivers it. So that's your job. This concept, uh, a big shout out to Matt Church. Uh, Matt Church, Peter Cook and Scott Stein wrote this fantastic book, Sell Your Thoughts, which you can get at mattchurch.com, petercook.com, I think scottstein.com as well. Uh, This is my Bible for how to run my business. It's fantastic. I recommend this book to anybody who is a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant, other kind of infopreneur, thought leader. And this idea comes from that. So you you do the thinking, you do the selling, you do the delivering. So the other things in your business, that's where you can get other people to do the work. So I'm going to talk about six things that you can do here in getting work done in your business. And they're going to go from what I think are the easiest to the hardest in terms of the amount of time that it takes. So as we go through each one, I'm going to just give you a brief overview of it. Um, I'll give you the pros and cons of each of these methods. And then I've got some questions for you, uh, for you to answer privately for yourself, for your business. But they're there for you to figure out what you, how you want to use each one of these six things in your business. Okay, so the first one is to source it. So the first one is where you just buy it off the shelf. So this is where you use other people's products. Okay, so some pros and cons. So if you use other people's products, it's tried and tested, and it's a pretty quick way to get valuable IP, uh, intellectual property, that you can share with your network, with your clients, and uh, the people that you work with. The, the negatives are that it's not your material. So uh, that leads to a number of things. So first of all, obviously you don't own it, so maybe you have to pay a fee every time you use it, or maybe, as in my case, I just refer people to that book, and I don't get a commission or anything like that, so but I'm doing it because it's valuable. And, and it's, it's not as flexible, so you're not, you can't pick and choose. So I can't take that book, cut out the three best chapters, and republish it as a, as a special report that I then on sell. Whereas you, I could do that if that was my material. 
Okay, so those are, those are the pros and cons about using other people's products. Uh, I put this one at the start. It seems a bit obvious, and yet I'm surprised how few people are using this, how few people are going and finding other people's material that they can use with permission, and then just using it and sharing it with their network. Okay, so I've got three questions for you. So this is the interactive bit. You can, uh, I'd like you to answer these questions for yourself. The first one is who can you refer people to, as I've done with the Sell Your Thoughts book. Who do you know who's got valuable material that you can refer people to? And whether or not you set up a formal referral agreement where you get paid a commission, that's not important. The idea is who can you, who has got material that is valuable for your network and it's worth you passing, on, passing people on to those people and their material. The second one is what material have you got uh, that you can use with permission? For example, YouTube videos. Uh, if you find great YouTube videos that are relevant to your market, there's nothing to stop you from embedding them on your website or blog. And then the third one is what can you buy or license that you can then on-sell to your clients and customers. Okay, now, all of these three things don't have to apply to everybody. So you may find that you don't want to license stuff, you just want to refer. Uh, there's material that you can use with permission. If you're an eGurus member, there's a great ebook in the eGurus vault, which is available to members, which is all about how to find reusable material. It talks about how to find videos, how to find music that you get, like royalty-free music, how you can find, um, what else is there, e-books, that are like really high-quality e-books that you can download and pass on to your clients. So if you're an eGurus member, just, uh, just want to let you know that that's available for you. So option two is to insource it or delegate it. So what you do is you've got stuff that you that uh, you've got new business and you delegate it to staff. Just for the purpose of this webinar and for this definition, uh, I'm just going to say staff is not necessarily the definition of, like, they don't have to be an employee. They could be a part-time virtual assistant. They could be a part-time assistant who works in your office. It could be somebody who comes in once a week to work for you. But basically their idea is they do general work for you and you think of them as staff, whether or not that's the official definition that the tax office will require you to use. That, that's not important. But the idea is that they come and do regular work for you in some way. So the, the pros and cons of that, well, obviously, if, you've get, if you get good people, they're reliable and they're available to you when you need them. So even if it's one day a week, you know that that one day a week, they're going to be there. The negatives of that is uh, that it can, it can be quite expensive because you've, got, you've now got an overhead. And they can be very skilled, but they're not necessarily skilled in everything that you need them to do. So they may not be the best at everything. They may just be very good at a lot of things, which is fine, but there may be ways that you can find better people for certain specific uh, jobs and tasks. And we'll get to that soon. Okay, so my questions for you here are things that you could be delegating. So the first one is, what can you do three times as fast as anybody else? And I put that question there because that's probably the sort of thing you should be looking at delegating. It's very tempting to say, oh, I can do that three times as fast as uh, teaching, even teaching somebody else to do it, let alone them doing it. So I will keep doing it. But just keep in mind that when you've got stuff that you can do three times as fast, if you do teach somebody else to do it, after they do it three times, you're ahead. And this was a lesson that it took me a long time to learn, especially as a first-time manager in a, in a software company. This is in a previous life many, many years ago. It was like I, I wouldn't delegate because I knew I could do it better and faster than my, my team members. And it took a while for me to get over myself and do that. And the second one, I credit Morris Goldberg for asking me this question. It made a big difference to my business. Uh, he asked me about, I guess about five or six years ago, we were both attending a workshop, and he said, what are you doing in your business that you don't love doing? 
And I said, well, I don't like doing this. I don't like doing this. He said, no, I didn't say like. I said, love. What are you doing that you don't love doing? And, if, and he said, that's what you should be looking at. How can you either get rid of it or get somebody else to do it? And the third question there is, um, if you don't have staff, is it time to hire somebody? And if you do have staff, is it time to hire somebody else? I just want you to think about, uh, if you've never thought about hiring staff, uh, then maybe now is a good time to do it. And again, I just want to make the point that hiring here and staff here, it could mean that you hire, a, let's say, a full-time virtual assistant working out of the Philippines or a part-time virtual assistant working out of the Philippines, but they're kind of dedicated, they do regular work for you. So the next area is probably the one that people will have a number of questions about, and this is the whole idea of outsourcing. And I want to talk about, you can outsource to anyone, really, like you can outsource secretarial services locally, you can outsource graphic design locally, and so on. But specifically for the purpose of this webinar, I think it will be useful for me to narrow the definition of outsourcing to talk about this idea of these talent markets. These are places like elance.com or odesk.com or fiverr.com, where there are a number of people who will offer their services when you put a project up there. So here are some of the benefits of it. The, the big benefit, which is in contrast to, the, to doing it with your staff, is that you do get some of the, the, the skill range can be greater because you get people who specialize in this area and maybe that's all they do. So I get transcriptions done and they, they get done very quickly, very accurately. I get some editing done, design work done. And uh, they're, they're people who are dedicated to doing that sort of work. Also, it's ad hoc work, so it's as you need it. So you don't need to hire somebody to do that for you full-time or part-time. You just use them whenever you need them. However, they're not as reliable, and I should say here, not necessarily as reliable as having your own staff doing it, and you do need to manage it. So you do need to get the work uh, to, have somebody to uh, have somebody to manage it. That might be you, or it might be one of your staff members if you have that. If you're going to outsource work to other people, just understand that you take it's your reputation on the line and you take responsibility for the work being done. So there's some things that you can do to make sure that the outsourcing process works smoothly. Um, I won't go into that in detail, but let me give you a couple of hints. So don't, if you're working with somebody new for the first time, don't give them a really important task or a big task or an expensive task. Start with something small and uh, preferably one that doesn't have a tight deadline. Because if something goes wrong, you do want the chance to work with them to fix it. Or if it goes really badly wrong, you want to have the time that you can say goodbye to them and find somebody else. Um, but when you find good providers, they do really good work for you. Okay, so let me just come back and ask you the three questions that I'd like you to think about in terms of using these talent markets. So what do you need done? So the first thing is what tasks do you need done or want done? Or maybe even you haven't had done because you just didn't know where to get it done. You didn't have the skills in-house and you didn't have the skills yourself. And the second one is when did you last try somebody new for something? Uh, if you've always used somebody for designing your business cards, maybe it's worthwhile investing a little bit of money just trying somebody else uh, and seeing whether they do a better job or something that's more appropriate for you. And, and the last question is really, it's not a question of uh, are you going to get started with this, but when will you get started? I think it's really something that it's easy to do. I think you should need to do it sooner rather than later. Don't start from scratch. There are a couple of things that I recommend you do when you start using these talent markets. And the first one is this idea that if you can find somebody who's done it before, then go to them. I've done a number of these outsourcing, and I, gen I do get asked, who do I work with? So if you're an eGurus member, there's a page on the eGurus site in the outsourcing section, which is all about my recommended providers and who I used for various things. The second thing is, uh, if you're going to do this sort of stuff over and over again, then just write a procedure. 
could be as simple as a Word document or even something in Notepad or uh, the Mac equivalents like Pages. Uh, for me, because I want to make this available to eGurus members, again, I've made this available in the eGurus world. For example, like how do you publish a print book step by step? It talks about things like where I've got my cover designed, uh, you know, where you can get ISBNs from and barcodes and stuff. Some of this is not really about outsourcing, but I just want to make the point that as much as possible, write systemize, write your own systems for how you get stuff done. So the next time you get it done, because you will have to do some project management around it, you can follow your own checklist. Or when you decide to hire somebody, you can give them the checklist and they can do the management for you. Okay, so the next option is crowdsourcing. So crowdsourcing is when you basically what you're doing is you're running a competition. So it's like the outsourcing idea, but instead of people bidding and you choose one bidder, people actually do the work for you and you choose a winner, which doesn't sound really fair, but it, that actually is the way that competitions work. So what you get is that you get a huge choice because you get to choose from a number of submissions. So you don't have to evaluate the providers, you actually evaluate the products that they create. And because of that, people because then people know they're in competition, they generally create very good products. Otherwise, they wouldn't even go into it in the first place. On the other hand, it does take time because you need to go through and sift through and choose the competition winners. You're actually evaluating products. Um, and you don't necessarily get the best people because some people will just refuse. They'll say, no, I'm, I'm above. I don't need to enter competitions. My work is good enough. It stands by itself. I get work through other ways. So you, you don't always get the best people who, are, who will actually enter in the first place, even though you get to choose the best one at the end. And there's some crowdsourcing sites like the one that's very well known is a design site called 99designs.com. So 99designs.com where you can get things like logos designed. You say, I want a logo designed and they have some ideas about pricing that you should offer to the winner and then you leave it for a few days and people come back with their logos. Uh, another way that you can do it is use some of these sites like Fiverr, for example. So I mentioned earlier that I got my business cards designed recently, my new business cards for the iMatter brand. And I did it with a version of crowdsourcing. What I did was I went, actually didn't just get the one design. I put the project out to five designers. And uh, with, with the outsourcing sites that I mentioned earlier, you actually have to pay them. So it's not a pure crowdsourcing because it's not saying here's a competition. I'm only going to pay the winner. I decided to pay four times as much for getting the design. Oh, sorry, five times as much. And what I found was that one of the designers I didn't like at all. But four of them I did, and I just chose the one that I liked the best. Okay, the questions I've got for you here. I'm cheating a little bit here because all I'm asking are exactly the same questions I asked about uh, outsourcing because I think the same questions apply. So what do you need done? When did you last try somebody different from than you're using already? And with either crowdsourcing or outsourcing, I don't mind which one you do. I don't think it's a question of if you're going to do it. It's just a question of when you're going to do it. Okay, so the next one is joint ventures or team sourcing. So team sourcing is the idea that you work with a partner. So this is not getting other people to do the work for you. It's actually partnering up with somebody to do it. And the, the key here is that you're not exactly, with the, others, the other things we talked about earlier, you pay somebody. With this one, you don't pay. So what you're doing is you share the cost of it, which might be nothing, and you share the, but you also get to share the profits. So the idea is that you don't, money doesn't change hands um, as, part of the, as part of the job. Money changes hands when you take the product out to market. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, the downsides are that you either find the, the, the biggest one is that you get the wrong partner. Okay, so, and it may not be anything wrong with them. It's just not the right fit. And quite often that, that happens because they've got different goals. So lots of people ask me to do joint venture projects for them. But I've been in situations where 
they lose interest somewhere down the track and uh, so the, the project fails. And I've been in situations where I've lost interest down the track because my focus has changed and therefore the project fails because it's my fault. That said, it can be really valuable for smaller projects. So for example, I've done a number of CD products. In fact, there's a series that I created a number of years ago with this whole bunch of CD pro- uh, products where I interviewed an expert and um, we took the recording and then basically we could do what we liked with the recording. So we could both have the recording and do what we liked with it. So there was no money changing hands. We did the interview. If I sold them, I kept all the money. If they sold them, they got all, all the money. So Erica Bagshaw and I did one, a great one about goal setting. Dave Filetti did a great one about multimedia products. And Ivan Frangi, we did a great one about creating experiences. And we were in, all, in each case, we were all able to use their product in whatever way we liked. did a great one with Candy Timpson about low-cost promotion. So she did all the offline promotion, and I did all the online promotion stuff. And in fact, we then went to somebody on Elance, got it transcribed, got it edited, and then we did editing, and we converted that into a book as well. Um, and again, what we did with the book was we shared the printing costs, and we sh- um, Candy got so many copies, I got the... We, we split the copies in half and uh, the number of copies in half and uh, we just did what we liked with it. So it's a great way to do those sort of partnerships. If you're looking for that sort of thing, here are the three questions I think you need to ask yourself. So first of all, the first question is, who do you who do you know who can add value to your network? In other words, who can you bring in as an expert? And then the second one is the opposite. So who can, uh, what networks can you add value to where you know the person well and they trust you to, to add value to their network? And finally, how do you make it win-win? So if you're going to take a product and do it together and then sell it together, you probably need a more formal agreement in place. If you're going to do what I did with those interview products, then it's a little bit easier because you just have, and in fact, there's a, again, eGurus members, there's a one-page legal agreement that I got drawn up, very simple, plain English agreement that I got a lawyer to draw up and just basically says, we're going to do the recording, I own the copyright, but you've got a license to do what you like with it. In summary, that's what it says. Of course, it's got a little bit more legalese around it, but it's a nice plain English thing that you're welcome to use. Um, you can, if you're not an eGurus member, of course, you can find someone to create something like that for you. Okay, the very last one is the do-it-yourself thing. So doing it yourself is probably what a lot of us are doing, and uh, there's some benefits to that. Of course, you've got full control of it. And it can be a lot faster than getting other people to do it, not only because you're better at some of those tasks, but also because you don't have to, you can make decisions on the fly as you go along. Um, However, of course, it means that you may not be focusing on the right things. So you you may be taking away time from things that only you can do by doing work that other people could do as well. And also, you're not necessarily the best to do it. I'm not saying you've necessarily got poor skills, but maybe you've not got the best skills to do something that you know, somebody else might be better at it, and in fact, might like, might actually even like doing it better. So there's three questions I'd like you to ask yourself. This is coming back to the think, sell, and deliver idea. And, and this is not about uh, what should you be outsourcing. This is what you should be doing. So what, should, what intellectual property should you be working on, whether it's writing or thinking or creating models or any of that? And how can you sell more? So look at your what you're doing in selling. And then how can you improve your delivery, which is not only improve what you're already doing, but you know, are there other delivery mechanisms you should be using? Like should you be learning about webinars? Okay. So in summary, remember, think, sell, and deliver. That's your job. And everything else, you might be doing it now, but think about whether that's what you should be doing now.
Hope you found that useful. So if you'd like to know more about outsourcing your business, join my Leverage You program. That's the online program for members of my eco-risk community. And this month's focus is outsourcing. I show you step-by-step how to set up a project on Elance, how to choose the best bidders, how to manage the project, and how to pay them safely and securely. If you're not a member of the eco-risk community, please join. Just $55 a month and you get access to me, many of my resources, including that Leverage You program. Are you a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant, or thought leader? If you'd like to use the internet to get more business or deliver your material, join the eGurus community. Find out more and sign up at eGurus.info. So that's it for Expert Girl Radio this month. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something you can use in your organization. I'll be back next month with more. Have a great month. You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.